the box. You opened it. We came. It's just a puzzle box! Oh no. It is a means to summon us. It's the Popcorn Digest with Gareth and Andy. Hello and welcome to Popcorn Digest, the podcast about the films you love and some you don't. I'm your host, Gareth Green, and joining me as always is my full-time co-host and part-time Cenobite, Andrew Raphael. Oh, I'm going to get you with that tickling stick. (laughs) (laughs) Talk about pleasure and suffering. (laughs) And today we're puzzling over not one, but two adaptions of Clive Barker's The Hellbound Heart, as we look at both the 1987 and 2022's Hellraiser. But do we find delight in these grotesque depictions of love and death? Or is the Battle of the Hellraisers about as pleasurable as a colonoscopy performed by Edward Scissorhands? <laughs> Prepare for suffering after the trailer. I have seen the future of horror. His name is Clive Barker. And after a brief hiatus, and then a further 12 months off podcasting, we're back! (laughs) (laughs) And we're here to take on the most sexual puzzle-based movie of all. After all, to paraphrase the Hell Priest himself, if you open the box, we come. (laughs) Based on a short story by famed kinky scouser Clive Barker, the Hellraiser series follows the adventures of a small puzzle box that once opened beckons forth demons from hell named Cenobites. Led by Pinhead, a demon who's been nailed more times than Jenna Jameson, these Cenobites consist of horribly memorable and strikingly grotesque characters such as the female, the engineer, the weeper, the Sarah Jessica Parker, and finally, the Harvey Weinstein. That's butterball, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. And that's, you know what? If this goes to a video at any point, that's exactly the one that it's going yeah. to, and Chatterer will be Sarah Jessica Parker. <laughs> and in the first of a new format named First and Last, we'll be looking at and comparing both the original Hellraiser and the most recent release of the same name. Sure, there are other films that we could have looked at too, but as someone who has seen their fair share of Hellraiser films, I know there is only so much suffering that a man can take. (laughs) So, Andy, let's put a pin into Hellraiser. Is this a series that you are particularly familiar with? Not really, no. I can't remember when we did um, watch Hellraiser that time. 
must have been about five years ago, when the Scarlet Box came out. That's the one, yeah. Uh, and you had a copy of it. Obviously, you'd seen Hellraiser many times over, but uh, I watched Hellraiser for the first time. And um, yeah, it wasn't what I was expecting at all. Then I didn't see it again. I think I had, I didn't get the Scarlet Box, but I got the box that got released after that without the bonus disc. Yeah. The vanilla packaging. And yeah, still never got around to watching it until um, this past week when I watched the first Hellraiser again and then watched um, Hellbound Hellraiser 2 uh, a few days yeah. afterwards. And then we had the idea of doing Hellraiser and the new 2022 remake, reboot, sequel. I don't know what it is. Frustratingly also called Hellraiser. And yeah, I still haven't seen uh, Hellraiser 3, although I have read up about some of the other Hellraiser sequels and watched a few um, watched a few kill counts um, yes. on, um, <laughs> on some of the later Hellraiser sequels to get a taste of what the later series feels like, which is very, very different to the first two films. Like The first two films yeah. kind of exist on their own. And yeah, I mean, my own other experience of Hellraiser, which would have been from very young... There's this little like movie memorabilia stall called The Last Picture Show. And I used to love going into it and I used to have all these like classic movie memorabilia. And because I grew up in the early 90s, there was a lot of that about. Uh, yeah. <laughs> you know, probably more so than now. Well, the, the, the stuff that's sold now is the same stuff because um, <laughs> we haven't, yeah, yeah, we haven't exactly, got that yeah. many classic franchise anymore. All right. I thought you were going to explain that there was a little tent in the back with an old man with a box. <laughs> <laughs> what would it be our pleasure? I'm pretty sure they had a either a Hellraiser 1 or 2 movie poster hung up there. Even though I never saw the film, it was always something that you couldn't not look at. Yeah. It was, yeah, a very striking image. And even if you haven't seen any of the films, you'll pretty much know who Pinhead is if you, you know, yeah. were living in the late 80s, early 90s, definitely. I mean, it's a testament to that character design and performance that it has become as iconic as it is, considering yeah. the amount of you know, shit films that it's been attached yeah. to. <laughs> you know, it's um, it's really a truly maligned series once we get outside of the first two films. Yeah, which is a great shame, I, I would say, because it had so much potential to go further yeah. and develop into a very uh, sophisticated series. But from what I can tell, and having seen you know, clips of um, Hellraiser 3 and, and Bloodline and the sequels that followed, just became very cookie cutter and kind of goofy yeah which is not what the original ones are about at all no uh, so yeah that's my general experience with hellraiser like yeah that poster and then seeing it with you about five years ago and then only really delving into any of the sequels uh this week and for me this really goes back to my early teenage years that image the image of pinhead is one that i knew from very young mm. my auntie was very much into um horror films and she loved clive barker and pinhead and the iconography around that i mean i also come from a liverpudlian background as well which yeah. is very much like clive barker's i also come from a working class background and i think like I have family members that attach themselves onto that as well, that kind of type of horror that he was 
presenting. So I was always familiar with the iconography and also being somebody that grew up in video shops, going in and out of video shops throughout the 90s. I mean, that, that face was everywhere. Mm. Yeah, but I didn't actually see the film until I was an uh, like early teenager, talking about like maybe 12 or 13. And it was just something I caught very late one night during a six-week holidays, which is the summer holiday period that we have. And Hellraiser wasn't the first film I saw. I think it was actually Hellbound, the sequel, um, Hellraiser 2. Yeah. And that film is just so kind of wildly ambitious as yeah, well and yeah. uh, you know expands on the law and it felt like a fever dream a short time afterwards hellraiser was on late one night on another channel and i, I got to see that as well mm-hmm. and yeah that was really my beginning with this series i love the first two hellraiser films like i have a legitimate real passionate love for them part of that as well was because um it's one of the few films from that period that felt like a discovery to me yeah i yeah. don't feel i get that anymore that that feeling of discovering films as much as no. i did back then no. i don't think um our culture set up for that kind of thing <laughs> yeah there's too much social media for that yeah exactly yeah and and we've gone into the polarizing direction of everything being has to be the best thing ever or the worst thing ever fucking hate it <laughs> Fucking love it! Fucking hate it! <laughs> it could be Marvel, it could be Star Wars, it could be a fucking Sundance yeah. movie. Who knows? Yeah. You know? Um, if you're yeah, black so or I- white. That one's staying in the edit. Yeah. And. Yeah, so that's really my background. I've really really loved the first two. I've gone through a lot of the series. I I watched Bloodline for the first time this month, actually. The Alan Smithy film. (laughs) I mean, I hate to say it, but I actually enjoyed it a lot more than I thought I was going to. It's really not very good. But there are, like, kernels of good ideas in there, and it's just schlocky enough that it gets away with it. I mean, once we get to, like, a giant space station version of the puzzle box, (laughs) you've gone far beyond what this series was ever supposed to... In (laughs) space! But there were moments that I actually like in that film. Very, very silly moments. It's not good, and I wouldn't recommend it, but there are worst, like, I almost said director DVD, but I think that was actually the last theatrical movie. They killed it as a theatrical series. And I also tried to watch Inferno as well this yeah. month, but um, that was one that I only lasted about 20 minutes into. That was truly a poor watch. And, and that was by Scott Derrickson, yeah. director of The Black Phone and Doctor Strange. Mm. So if, if ever you want to know a story of a white guy succeeding <laughs> on mediocrity, that's one. <laughs> I actually don't mind Scott Derrickson. He makes half good movies movies like all of his films are half good <laughs> but anyway yeah so that's my background with hellraiser so I'm, I'm quite familiar with it i want to give a shout out as well to the the arrow release of the series it's the best that this series is well when we're talking about the first two films it's the best that they've looked on yeah um, home video and that very first scarlet box that they released was fantastic mm. yeah so that really brings us to this and and with the uh the new one being released this month it hasn't actually been released officially in the uk yet but no. I, I don't think uh i think anybody that wants to see it has already <laughs> seen it now so yeah i don't get what the point with that was so yeah it gives us a chance to really kind of look at where the series has been and come back to as well by comparing and contrasting these two films because going into the new hellraiser film i had a lot of anticipation for it i thought it was going to be there was a lot of hype i thought it was going to be to be honest i thought it was going to be a lot better than it was i love the director david bruckner he did the ritual and more importantly he did the night house which is just an excellent horror film 
And going into this, I thought, oh, well, this is the perfect marriage of director and material. And although I do think it is a well-directed film, I think the script lets it down. But I want to get into the reasons as to that later on. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so Hellraiser, where does this begin? I guess a little bit of context for the series is, as I've mentioned, it's based on a novella by Clive Barker called The Hellbound Heart. And it'll be as no uh, like zero surprise to anybody that it was based on like um it's the cenobites were based on a lot of uh, research he had done a very very intensive research i imagine into like <laughs> usa gay bar culture and bdsm and mm-hmm. leather culture at the time yeah. that kind of thing during the 80s yeah which was a very very taboo thing back then um i know david bruckner the director of the new one said that leather and bdsm and that you know gay culture isn't as taboo as it was back then so um that's why the, the his particular films are lacking that element it's because that's no longer really as edgy as it was yeah yeah um, and clive barker himself i've mentioned he's liverpudlian he's a liverpudlian horror writer he's a gay horror writer as well which gives him a unique perspective and he is essentially the equivalent we have of stephen king or garth morangi yeah or garth morangi no that's james herbert <laughs> yeah. I've, re- I've read some james herbert that's definitely him Famed yeah. author of such film, uh, such books as The Rats and The Dark. <laughs> but yeah, I think my only other experience of Clive Barker is I don't know why, but I think when I think when I was in the states once, uh, and it was during the mid nineties when I was crazy about things like Goosebumps and um, Christopher Pike and things like that. Yeah, and I think I picked up his um, young adult book, The Thief of Always and never read it <laughs> yeah and that's my experience of clive barker outside of this i've read the hellbound heart but so long ago that i can i don't i don't remember it really i yeah. started reading it not too long ago and bits and bobs were coming back to me but i can't remember that i read the story that the midnight meat train was based on and i have read the scarlet gospels the harry diamore mm-hmm. lord of illusions sequel and hellraiser sequel that he yeah. wrote that was like a crossover of the two i read that when it came out i quite enjoyed that to be honest yeah. um i do have the books of blood I've read um, various stories out of that. Oh, and I'm sure I've read this, uh, The Forbidden, the original Candyman. Mm. I'm sure I've got that somewhere as well. Yeah. Um, oh, something oh, something uh, made a noise behind me. <laughs> <laughs> it could be the Cenobites. Was it like a rattling of chains? Yeah, the war's going to open up in a minute, I think. <laughs> yeah. yes. Can you just give it an hour and a half, please? Yeah, I think it was one. We actually watched the original Candyman uh, a couple of weeks ago, didn't we? And I think that's what gave me the idea to watch Hellraiser again. So, yeah, it's interesting. Yeah, they are very... Um, like, intrinsically linked, in a way. Yeah. Like, even now. And, yeah, it's strange. Yeah, they're both very striking. And also, like, they do feel very um, British, even though they've both been Americanized in yes. some way. So, it's it's strange. I kind of wish that someone would do an adaptation of his work that is actually set in the UK. Mm-hmm. Because I feel like it would give it a more appropriate flavour. I think than 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 what what we have, which is either sort of ambiguous Americanization or just set in America. Yeah, I mean, I've always felt that, especially with Candyman as well. We certainly have that in a more obvious way with Hellraiser. It's almost English, but <laughs> <laughs> not yeah. quite. Yeah, and uh, but with Candyman, I've I've always felt that there's a certain 
like link to Liverpool as well as mm. a and I because I know that was originally where he drew his inspiration in regards to things like gentrification and and what what you know I grew up in one of I say grew up it was like the first six years of my life was spent in one of the roughest areas in Liverpool Toxteth mm. actually never had a problem there whatsoever but like gentrification was a huge thing uh, issue there and that is very much an element of that and I. I would love to see somebody set it against against that kind of backdrop because you also have the race riots of the 1980s that happened in Toxteth, which feel yeah. like they very much inform a lot of what happens in Candyman. Yeah. It's, it's stories are calling out for this kind of like... <laughs> I, I hate to be one of those people that are always like, oh, this isn't the true version of it. But we, I'm always holding out hope that somebody will do, do a, an English version of this, an England-based version version of this specifically liverpool <laughs> and again i think we've we've talked about this before it's the same thing with roald dahl for me personally and your favorite one is the johnny depp starring charlie in the chocolate factory right <laughs> you've, you've mentioned that many times you've said that that's the only one that got it right well i say like the only adaptation that works for me and and worked for roald dahl himself was that 1989 cosgrove hall bfgs because although Roald Dahl had, you know, a background in Norway and everything. That his his sensibilities are are essentially English. You only have to look at his Bond film for that. Yeah, and they were <laughs> they got everything right, and they got the feel of it. They got the darkness of it. Yeah, and even if he was alive, I can I could I could bet money on the fact that he probably wouldn't like any other adaptation of his work uh, that's mm-hmm. been produced since. Uh, I could bet money on it because they always get something wrong either by americanizing it or missing the point of something or something so yeah. it is a similar yeah so it would be good to see say you know an ad- adaptation of the candy man set in the 1980s liverpool yeah exactly it would work so well yeah and instead of the blocks of flats you have the terraced houses you know the yeah. walls between them broken through and that kind of thing this is a great way to actually see go over to our um <laughs> our original topic hellraiser hmm. in that it is both set in england but also not set in england yeah well yeah one of the stipulations is was it from new world new world yeah. uh, who, who financed the film that um like they made the film basically and then it was only in post-production that they persuaded clive barker to kind of set it in america because they'd they'd already gone down the route of getting andrew robinson yeah as like an american star and having it kind of half american half english and then they kind of went the whole hog which i i still think was a a huge mistake yeah i think it it's the film's achilles heel for me like it's it kind of slightly cripples it yeah it's like a seven out of ten film and it stops it from being sort of like an eight out of ten film (laughs) yeah i get you yeah with the sequel even though it has the same thing because they knew what was going on you know that they built it into the production it doesn't feel as uh awkward as it does in the first film because like they they got the right people to dub the right actors or they got the actors to do american accents or something whereas like some of the voices do not match at all with some of the characters in the film <laughs> yeah and and in a way as well the real world in the sequel the uh the surrounding location is inconsequential yeah yeah it's it's more of an exploration of you know leviathan and the other world you know yeah. this mc escher type hellish landscape that they explore um it's, it feels more of a fever dream whereas i feel like the location itself in hellraiser is certainly like it's more of a prominent factor in that film 
Yeah. There's a lot more that takes place in the surrounding area. I mean, we even see uh, Battersea Power Station in the background. There is no location in America that resembles Battersea Power Station. No. So so iconic. It's been on the background of Pink Floyd album covers, <laughs> you know. I mean, that the house itself is is such an English house. Yeah. And everybody in it who isn't like playing, you know, isn't an American looks English. Like Yeah, even the like featured extras look like oh, Phil Collins. Like the removal men and, and and um and Kirsty's boyfriend <laughs> yeah. they just they do look like british people from the 80s <laughs> they just yes exactly yeah you can't fool anyone <laughs> it reminds me of that scene in the simpsons where lisa is shown the big book of british smiles and if you went through <laughs> the pages it would just be characters from hellraiser you know <laughs> i think for me it, it's a, it's a shame that it that it had to go out like that and it's a shame that they haven't been able to restore the the first yeah. film with with its audio and get rid of get rid of the incredibly goofy and really badly done dubbing. It's like they did it for fifty p. <laughs> yeah, it's like they ran out of money and literally did it in somebody. You know, it's just yeah, it's really bad. I get that, especially as someone coming at the series, uh, coming Ooh. at the series. Well, you know, hey, 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 kinky, uh, who is coming to the series at a later stage in their life? For me. It's um, what you're describing as a fault is actually a feature. Like yeah. it's something I, I I've I've grown to enjoy about it because well, yeah, it's, it's you long can beyond the point it as of a quirk, ever... couldn't you? Exactly. Yeah, yeah. It's it's a charming element of the film, and in it you can very much see that Clive Barker, as a director, a very ex- inexperienced director, yeah, it's kind of finding their feet. It's a bit rough around the edges, but I like that about it. Yeah, you you, you can sense that he lost that battle. Yes. Oh, that 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 one particularly. You know, yeah. If he'd if he'd been a more established director. He probably would have been able to keep it British. Yeah, exactly. And yeah, as you say, that came from New World Pictures, and that was once the film went into post, they yeah. uh, moved the editing straight to America, and that was one of the first things that they did to maximise the saleability of the film. Yeah, because I was watching the uh, Leviathan documentary earlier, and um, I imagine it was because they knew that this had franchise potential, and that it, it was said that New World wanted their own Nightmare on Elm Street. And that's why they made it, made the move to try and Americanize the film a bit more. But yeah, I think it was a little bit misguided. Um, and it's weird actually talking about the franchise potential of this because they, as you say, they wanted it to be their nightmare in Elm Street. Mm. I feel like we, as a British people, have been kind of robbed of our own franchise. This is one that's really been kind of like pilfered out of our pockets, kind of. Yeah, yeah. Uh, especially with how this series has gone once it made the transition from the. Uh, original producers new world pictures to dimension yeah then the series really took a nosedive that it hasn't ever quite recovered from maybe it's showing signs of moving in the right direction now they tried to make it like nightmare on elm street (laughs) in a way and given what hellbound gave us it feels like yeah just a big missed opportunity i think one of the things that the series does wrong from that point onwards essentially that these two films and specifically the first one does so right is that despite the fact that pinhead is such an iconic character you know like as we say he's synonymous with this series his picture is posted everywhere it's the picture on the front of the cover he is essentially a supporting role in in the film yeah he is a rather minor character whose threat is always felt yeah, and that even goes 
into the second film, Hellbound, as well. His role is expanded upon. His character is given some depth and some background, but it is still a secondary character to the whole Julia and Kirsty yeah. um, bashing of heads. And in this one, we have in the first one we have Frank as well as um, oh, uh, what's Andrew Robinson's character uh, Larry. called? Uh, Larry, yeah, Larry. Such an American name, Larry. <laughs> yeah, we have Larry as well. And yeah, I think that that's something that. I really appreciate about these films. Essentially, they never lose sight of the fact that Julia is the villain. Yeah. And that is something that even now the films keep getting wrong. Yeah. It has these uh, demonic locations and characters, but it's still a very kind of human-based story of sexuality, of lust, of, um, you know, the temptation of suffering, so to you know, when we go into like BDSM culture and stuff like that, yeah, and all of that is lost now. Yeah, and the other thing I feel like gets wrong, and I'm not sure whether this is something that start, starts to slide in the in the sequels because I definitely picked it up on the on the new version is that the originals paint the Cenobites not as pure villains; they're not like pure no. evil. They're almost like tragic figures, uh, especially in the second one. Yes, whereas. The new ones, they lose all depth. They just become the villains. And yeah. that human conflict is kind of gone as well because from the sounds of it, it doesn't look like they, they lose sight of that in the in the third one because obviously the puzzle box opens for people who who desire it as such. Yeah. It feels like a lot of the a lot of the key themes and, and the point behind a lot of these things has been slowly lost over time. And yeah. we still really haven't got it back. No. And I, I do find it so much more interesting as well, like especially, like, I did love how um, the Cenobites were portrayed in the second film, yeah, especially, you know, at the end with, the, with their demise, like, the cuts to when it shows you who they were, it mm-hmm. was quite sad. Especially yeah, when there's you... one in particular of the, <laughs> yeah. of the child who's been um, impaled. Yeah. yeah, and it's just like, oh God, what happened? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> and the idea as well that there's this all-seeing god of hell called the Leviathan who could just be another stage, another rung in this world of demonic creatures yeah. who has essentially lied to them their entire time. They, you know, they've, they've been used. Yeah. In, in a way as well, I know that this... Um, that Hellbound ends with something of a sequel bait with the pillar of suffering rising from the mattress with um, various characters' faces attached to it. Yeah. It still feels like an ending in a way for Pinhead, that one. Like, they could have moved the series further beyond that. Yeah, yeah. Like, once they've introduced that other world, they really needed to go all in on taking that further. Yeah, yeah. And instead, the sequels became more about, oh, what crazy Cenobites can we come up with? This guy's got a video, like a camera stuck in his head. He's got CDs He's got in his head. <laughs> so <laughs> know, 90s. Yeah. And it, it's that kind of thing. This guy's got a fucking DJ set on his chest. <laughs> you know, it's all like that, that kind of thing. Yeah. It's, it's ridiculous. And that, uh, the whole series becomes about like what weird gimmicky fucking Cenobites can we come up with? <laughs> and there's also that feeling that the Cenobites can be bargained with like they're quite reasonable in a way like especially in the first one when when kirsty bargains with them for you know say because she knows where frank is yeah there's just so much more to them but again because they are secondary characters it kind of just shows you just enough yeah without sort of overexposing them and i do love the designs of them like it goes into quite a lot of detail on the documentary about how they 
sort of created each one and and how uh, what's the uh, makeup company that did the original image animation which they described yeah. as a, a youth club for makeup artists oh right really yeah because everyone was so young like oh <laughs> they had like people like 16 working on the thing and apparently yeah um it sounded like they were like a very small group that was set up in a shed in shepperton studios and made up of people who d- obviously done work for other other films for other companies that it decided just to sort of band together. Uh, I think their first job was Highlander. That kind of makes sense, actually. Yeah. And then they, they did some other films, but then, yeah, Hellraiser was their next kind of major project. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it was literally only a small group of about 10 people. In terms of the special effects, it's it's a, a triumph, really. Yeah. Um, I know that Clive Barker speaks about his time on this film as one where he's essentially cut his teeth. He had no idea. He didn't know the difference between lenses either. Yeah. He could, I think the famous quote is that um, you could have been pointed at spaghetti on a plate and told me that that was a lens. <laughs> but yeah, he, he essentially had no idea about this. And yet somehow I think as well, it is rough around the edges. There are a certain inconsistency, inconsistencies in filmmaking, but it somehow comes together. And like the special effects, the iconography, that creature design is just timeless yeah. for me. Yeah. It's perfect. Despite how little that they're used in the film, characters like Chatterer have become fan favorites. The female. <laughs> the imaginative <laughs> I like, title. I like how, yeah, the imaginative titled one, The Female. We, you know, Butterball, Chatterer. I mean, why couldn't they have called her Vulverneck or something like that? <laughs> Apparently as well, she had to walk around all day with that prosthetic, the penis spike hanging out oh. of a vulva neck for like all day for Hellbound, which is quite fun. Apparently the, the, the original actress hated it so much that she didn't come back for the sequel, which is mm-hmm. why it's a different actress. Like she yeah. genuinely hated every single minute of it. She hated how <laughs> she looked and uh, yeah, so. Yeah. Just kind of, I always find kind of interesting because like, you know, I've always loved makeup and dressing up and, you know, in terms of like creatures and stuff, I always thought it would be so mm-hmm. cool to, to do something like that. And it would be strange that you would even sign on to doing something like that if you weren't even remotely interested or keen on it. Yeah. <laughs> it's bizarre, yeah. really. As well as the characters themselves, these Cenobites, the, the thing that I find intrinsic, inseparable from these, well, specifically the first one and somewhat into the second one as well, is um, that sense of sexual exploration that is yeah. Um, yeah. is woven through this film. There's something that I had always kind of drawn a criticism for with this film with the very first one and that is to do with julia and frank's sex scene and once i saw the uh, leviathan documentary i kind of came to understand why it is the way it is and the reason for that is julia's uh, lust and passion for frank is referred to in this kind of like grand i want don't want to say romantic but there's like a desire there there's this yeah, real like yeah. deep desire for for who he is and how she can explore her sexuality with him and yet when you actually do see them having sex it's like that garth Moranki thing where you know we did all the positions um on top doggy and <laughs> missionary or whatever it is <laughs> you're talking and missionary it, it, yeah missionary <laughs> missionary <laughs> And actually, Clive Barker said that there was that, there was so much that they filmed for that particular part, the flashback, 
he said that there was a there was spanking involved, and it was actually supposed to be more along the lines of sodomy. Yeah, but the yeah. censors were very much against that. He said, "Well, we did have a slight problem with the eroticism. <laughs> I shot a much hotter flashback sequence, oh. and they would allow us to cut in. Mine was more explicit and less violent, which makes sense to me. They wanted to substitute one kind of undertow for another. I had a much more explicit sexual encounter between Frank and Julia, but they said no. Let's take out the sodomy and put." in the flick knife as if that's somehow better well violence is fine but <laughs> sex no 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 <laughs> well this this really really takes it to the limit he says the mpaa told me i was allowed two consecutive buttock thrusts from frank oh. but three is deemed obscene but the scene where she shoots him in the deck is fine <laughs> <laughs> it's fine it's fine <laughs> Those scenes in which she attacks many different sleazy men with a hammer. Oh, fine. This film is kind of slightly begging for a uh, a restored version without the dubbing and with all these things put back in, but I imagine quite a lot of it's lost. Barker talks about the spanking scene as just being like, who knows who has that now in terms of... <laughs> some pervert. Who, you know, so when when some rich pervert dies or some yeah. some lowly producer dies, that, that can is going to roll out of his bedroom. You know, like, like Citizen Kane, he's going to be holding it and he's going to die saying, <laughs> Julia spanking scene. Oh, it'll be... And then the reel will roll out of his hand and down the... T- oh, <laughs> down, it'll, down the it'll, room. It will be at some TV station in Nigeria somewhere. <laughs> That's what all this stuff is. Yeah. 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 Along with like some like about 13 lost Doctor Who episodes. Oh yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, TV station Nigeria or or Australia or somewhere like yeah. that. Yeah. Yeah, the famous story there is that the BBC sold a lot of tapes to like African um TV circuits yeah. that they had because yeah. it was much cheaper to actually import video that had been filmed on than it was to buy it new. Yeah. So the BBC just kind of sold it off. Some of them are like 16 millimeter prints and stuff, but like a, yeah. a lot of these things, are, like a lot of like classic TV and stuff that we enjoy now is um, sourced from overseas, like mainly yeah, like Canada is a big one, uh, yeah. Nigeria and Australia and New Zealand. Crazy. Yeah, it's really bonkers. But yeah, that's where they keep finding all these things. It's why every now and again, every few years, it's like, hey, we found that Morecambe and Wise sketch. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Where was it? It was in Kenya. <laughs> <laughs> oh. You know what? It's it's kind of fascinating in a way. Like for these films that were made with relatively small production companies and without kind of studio backing, I've always wondered what the um what the archive system is like for something yeah. like this. I imagine it's not quite I mean, to be honest, even with the big studios it's not particularly great. You know that scene at the end of Hellraiser where she throws the puzzle box onto the fire? Yeah, yeah. That is the archiving system that they had (laughs) for this film, and many films like it. Like, talking about the sexuality as well and the characters in question, I love Frank and Julia as characters. Yeah. I mean, Frank is weird as a character as well because it's uh, it's like two different performances as well. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> I don't think it's helped by that dub either because it's 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 obviously they're no. played by two different actors, but I think even the dub, it's two different actors yeah. doing the voice and it's like, why? <laughs> yeah, so it, it loses that connective tissue. Yeah, because, you know, they may as well be two different different characters i get the feeling that the the guy playing frank sean chapman yeah it almost feels like they kind of like cast a model <laughs> yeah. it's like yeah yeah no he's got the look 
But really, our main guy is just going to be covered in blood and goo for the rest of it. And then at the end, he turns yeah. into Andrew Robinson. Which, to be honest, if you cast Andrew Robinson in a film, for most of it, if you're an Andrew Robinson fan, for most of this, you're probably thinking, what's he doing in this? <laughs> He's normally the bad guy. And then at the end, yeah. you're like, ah, yeah, yeah, there we go. There we go. That's yeah. the Andrew Robinson we know and love. I bet he was reading the scripts like, oh, yeah, you know what? This is This is something different. I can get my my uh, teeth into and then it gets to like page 90 and goes oh no there it is yeah <laughs> there, 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 there it is jesus wept i was watching charles play three the other day you know outside of anything with chucky like he is the best thing about that film yeah that's, that's still one i haven't seen Have Child's play three but no no i've seen i've seen a weird mix of child's play films it's like i've seen like every other film or something like that all right yes yeah, it's, it's, it's okay it's, it's one of those films where it's like it's reputation and and um because obviously that was the, um, I mean, going into very very dark and serious territory now. That was the, uh, that was the Jamie Bulger film. Yeah. Allegedly, yeah. it's yeah. kind of been debunked now. But for a long time, that film had that sort of stigma attached to it. Yeah. Which is strange because it's such a goofy film. Mm-hmm. When it's when the Chucky film started to become a little bit more comedic and goofy. But yeah, because of that whole them renting it on video and stuff like that and, and reenacting things from it. I mean, because of that as well, it's become a... For, for anybody that goes to any type of film school in the UK, that becomes instantly one of the kind of like first topics they teach is the hypodermic needle theory. And always you end up reading about Jamie Bulger and Child's Play and the video nasties of yeah. the 80s yeah. and whether or not they um, inspired certain crimes of the era. And um, without fail, it's come up in about three different courses that I've been on <laughs> as being like one yeah. part of the syllabus. Yeah. Although we're beyond that now and it's... Uh, and to be honest, anybody that does that film course, we always it, it, we always end up writing a um, an, an essay about how, fuck you, it's because they were fucked up kids. And less about like the video nasties of the time. Although we've got to a point now where we can finally divorce the two, it's still kind of like such a dark period in the history of horror cinema yeah, and yeah. just the UK in general that it still comes up now and it still bears weight, and, it, and as it should. But uh, anyway... <laughs> yeah. <is> a... <laughs> Oh my god. This got real serious real god quick. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, back to the lighter side of Hellraiser. Yeah. Um <laughs> with skinless bodies. Exactly, yeah. <laughs> Let's talk about Andrew Robinson's exploding head. I love that that final line is actually his, isn't it? Um because mm-hmm. the, the original line was was just like fuck you or something and then it was like, Oh, it's not good enough. I need a better line than no. that. And it's like I always love the phrase Jesus wept. So and Clive Barker yeah. loved it. Uh and it's just it's one of those images that you know once you've seen it you can't you can't forget it you yeah you know. can't unsee no. it it's there <laughs> it's there forever yeah it's even the, the tongue moving about his mouth is grotesquely stretched apart mouth i mean it's it's kind of a shame that he only gets to play frank for about four or five minutes but yeah. it's like with the cenobites doing so for any longer would sort of really stretch credibility especially because he looks like he's dipped his head in a jam jar <laughs> yeah but like <laughs> It's it's things like that, like the fact that Kirsty never mentions that, 
like around the seams of his hairline, he seems to be dripping with jam. Yeah, and uh, and seems to be sweating some sort of pussy blood substance. Yeah, and she's, it just never gets mentioned once, but it's just there. Oh yeah, it should be like, Dad, Dad, well, what what's happened to your face? Is that? Like, oh, <laughs> yeah, I just I just got hit in the head with a jam jar. I've just had to rearrange my skin. Yeah, but yeah, I think that's the thing that that struck me when I first saw this film because it wasn't what I was expecting. Because obviously with the with the poster and everything, you kind of thinking, oh, there's going to be all the Cenobites and it's all going to be about that. It isn't at all. Like I said, they are really, really minor in this yeah. first film. And it's really about Frank and Julia and being in this house. Yeah, really, it's about a middle-aged woman trying to get fucked. Yeah. Good and proper, which is not even a joke. Yeah. That is yeah. essentially what she's lusting for. Yeah, I think, I think also because of the... Um, the casting is kind of very um, quirky. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, you can't really put it in the same category as the uh, other major sort of horror franchises because its its casting is so off kilter in, in comparison. Yeah. Yeah, getting people like Andrew Robinson and then like Claire Higgins. Mm-hmm. It's a very like, yeah, I mean, obviously the American dubbing doesn't help, but it's a very odd combination of elements, I would say. Yes, it is, definitely. And also... Um... Like one of the things that I absolutely adore about this film as well, that I feel like we don't get anymore. And to be honest, we rarely got back then. But um, this is a very low budget film. It was yeah. made for $1 million. And yet, despite that, it has this like really deeply textured and rich score as well by christopher young like it's not a synth score which would be typical of the time in many respects yeah comparing that and its sequel to the latest hellraiser which is at its best when it's actually just repeating christopher young yeah like this is a film that's made for apparently somewhere between 40 and 50 million dollars or that Mm -hmm. kind of in that kind of region it's full of like bwams and ah. yeah, exactly. Yeah, it's and it's just hammering you over the head. There's no texture and and that's really that's strange for me because David Bruckner's films in that respect have been rather underplayed when it comes to those those type of elements. This one seems to be like like the new one seems to be really over the top. But I I just want to talk for a moment about Christopher Young's amazing score. Yeah, it's like yeah. it's beautiful. It's sad. It's it's horrifying at times as well. And it even reminds me at a couple of moments, I think it's got like a Bishop's Countdown element a couple of moments as well. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but I, I adore that score for both um, Hellraiser and Hellbound. Yeah, and that, that it was a replacement score as well in the original. Like they wanted the, I think Clive Barker originally wanted the score to be done by a band called Coil. And it was going to be more sort of... Thrash metal. Well, it was going to be industrial sound design kind of thing. And New World really didn't want them to be involved because they they had a few. I think they had a couple of meetings with them, and they really didn't understand how to write for picture and stuff. So they were like, ah. And I think Christopher Young had already done some work for New World Pictures anyway, yeah. and he'd already had a couple of things under his belt. I think yeah, he'd done that um, Toe Hooper's Invaders from Mars and things like that yeah. beforehand. So he was like the kind of slightly more experienced pair of hands to sort of. Mm-hmm. take it and again it, it is it was a good move it was probably a much better move by new world than doing the american dub <laughs> but um yeah like yeah it does give it a very um distinctive edge when yeah most horror films of this time either had synth scores or like even like soundtracks scores yeah 
And this, I mean, it doesn't, to, not to put down any of those scores, John Carpenter, for example, has made um, great many synth scores, but this feels as well, because it feels so rich and full-bodied as well, despite the fact that it's, um, it, you know, it's a relatively small orchestra, but it doesn't feel like it was just made in someone's garage yeah. by banging about a few pans, like, for example, the Terminator score. Yeah. It makes the film feel bigger than it is as well. Yeah, I mean, I was thinking even with the with the new version, the the main lyrical part of the score is the, is the music that they play in the end credits, where it just goes to like the the kind of yeah more the Christopher Young style, where it's just all yeah. strings and stuff. And uh, yeah, I, I, that 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 opening shot of the of the new film kind of made me sigh because it was like, oh, why why are we having this music again? I thought we got away yeah. from this kind of thing. Yeah. I mean, it does settle down a bit. There are there are a couple of nice things about the score. Yes, there are. There are, for sure. But yeah, it does slip into sort of 2010s cliches. Mm-hmm. I mean, to be honest, I've probably got more to say about the new one, because the old one is flawed, but it has, yeah, it's a very interesting and charming film. And, uh, I mean, it's probably worth noting for myself, uh, watching the second one, I mean, I like that one even more. I yeah. know I even said to you the other day, it's like a perfect example of what a sequel should be. 100%. Expanding everything and not just repeating what's gone on in the first film, like really genuinely expanding on on certain ideas from from that world and, and delving into it further uh, and going really kind of, crazy with it and the thing is as well about the uh the sequel that we we can't really look past uh, just before we move on is that it was directed by tony randall who has the weirdest filmography for somebody that made hellbound hellraiser 2 yeah he did the special effects for escape from new york he worked on a visual with the visual effects team on that but like his latest film for example was one of those kind of director dvd director tv hallmarky type movies called a dog gone adventure about a couple <laughs> of dogs on an adventure with their family and it looks like here we go, i'll say we go from hellraiser 2 to a dog gone adventure with the synopsis of a telepathic dog enlists a group of fun loving kids to help him solve a mystery the canine detective leads the children down a road filled with action and adventure they find a blood soaked mattress they find a box covered in shame <laughs> <laughs> Before we moved on, I couldn't help but mention that. That's just it's it's just such a strange filmography for for, for that's that like gentleman. a Dean Cundy filmography. It, it really is. That is exactly it. Yeah, I bloody love that second film because I say I, like, I love the first. I do like the first film, but it does have certain flaws to it. It, cer- I feel it like certainly does. I, I a mean, lot of those, a lot of those kinks are ironed out in the second one. Yeah, but it still has the same kind of feel. It's like the best version of that that approach to the to the story and it's a shame that it just ends there <laughs> and even like julia the, the the birth of julia from that blood-soaked mattress as she like wraps yeah. her legs it's like it's both it's sexual it's horrible you know she's born from the mattress that she's had sex with frank on and stuff like that it's oh, and the guy with the maggots as well like yeah oh who's uh, who's the guy who plays the poor um, poor fellow it's the who's actually the yeah. guy who plays frank in it it's like they sort of gifted him that you can actually be seen in this film but you have to like <laughs> mutilate yourself <laughs> yeah it's such a horrible scene and and it also introduces an, another absolutely fantastic character who gets zero um exploration in any sequels or anything like that but the uh the channard character oh which is just excellent because obviously i, I know uh, kenneth cranham most f- from you know 
hot fuzz. Of course. And it's like, <laughs> and having seen Hellbound, it's like makes perfect sense as to why he's there. Yeah. I mean, obviously, Hot Fuzz is one of our uh, very, very highly regarded film uh, from us, but it's literally like th- that. That cast list is just fucking bonkers. It's an embarrassment of riches. Yeah, it is. It really is. It's like it's like better than the expendables for for movie <laughs> of villains <laughs> oh of course absolutely yeah. <laughs> but yeah i know i really loved um just how they expanded all that that world and yeah what they did with that channing character yeah um was just kind of a bit batshit yeah yeah it was just great <laughs> also as well i just like i think we were talking about it when we were watching um candy man i just love that era of like horror filmmaking as well where everything's just a little bit gritty a little bit grainy yeah and gives it a real like um unnerving texture about it that you just don't get these days that's the word that you've just mentioned and i have mentioned it on a podcast many times as well but like the texture that's afforded by having this kind of like rough around the edges quality you know the fact that you know, not every visual effect may work or anything like that, but the grittiness that comes with that as well by having this feel almost real world, almost documentary kind of thing at times and uh, and not at others. I don't know. It's like, it, as I say, said at the beginning, you know, the it's something that a lot of horror has missed and is lacking now. And, and we look at the modern Candyman, which I, I didn't mind the new Candyman. It was an upper middling film for me. And the mm. new Hellraiser is a lower middling film for me. It's, But the thing that they have in common is that they're both pristine. And yeah. uh, there's no ounce of grit to them whatsoever as well, despite even the subject matter. They needed to feel rougher. They, I, I would have taken some flaws you know that kind of thing make it feel a bit more real put make it feel a bit more immediate but instead they're very kind of pristine and i mean this is a good point as well a good chance for us to to jump onto the new hellraiser and and start to really talk about that and what works and what doesn't yeah yeah so andy uh just to ask what are your thoughts on i mean i've already kind of let loose a few thoughts on the new hellraiser but i've not really taken anything from you at the moment what are your yeah. thoughts on the new hellraiser where do you stand with it? It, it i mean it's very much like a lot of these horror revivals it's, it's no coincidence that this film got made because of the success of the 2018 halloween because it's yeah. the same similar production company and everything and it's it's very much like that film for me, where it's like close but no cigar. Although I probably say that I'm I might have enjoyed this one a little bit more than the 2018 Halloween, just because it it tries to do something a little bit different, yeah. rather than just try and recreate what what's already been done. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I kind of felt like I you know I enjoyed it whilst I was watching it, but then it doesn't it doesn't stay with you. Mm-hmm. There's only a few images that really stay with me yeah. um, from the film. Um, and it's a shame, yeah, because what what did stick with me was actually I thought was really good, but there just wasn't enough of it um, considering how long the film is. Yeah, Because, yeah. <laughs> like, you know, it's a two-hour film. We know it's most of these other Hellraiser films are about 90 minutes long. Mm-hmm. Um, and, yeah, it was just very, yeah, very close but no cigar. And, yeah, like you say, lacking in grit. I did appreciate that it was it wasn't overlit. I did like that it was mm-hmm. 
even though it was kind of very pristine looking, the dark scenes were dark rather than, you know, yeah. some horror films where everything's overlit, especially, you know, I think we're, I think there's that 3D phase and stuff that were coming out of oh, yeah. early, early digital cameras and stuff where things were slightly overlit to kind of compensate for technical difficulties and things like that. Yeah, and things that were made for streaming as well because... Oh, yeah. Yeah. Director streaming, they're, be, they're not being shown on cinema screens, they're being shown on people's TVs. There's yeah. only so much darkness that a TV can handle <laughs> at that time yeah. and period. Whereas I think like television technology with um, OLED and that type of thing, it's all catching up now. Yeah, I mean, the, uh, yeah, to its credit, it didn't look like a streaming film. It not, looked like a, a legitimate film that you could have just shown in the cinema. Which is why I think it may have been delayed over here because they're currently weighing yeah. up whether or not to give it a theatrical release, it seems. Yeah. It's strange, like, there's things that I thought started off well and then didn't really go anywhere, or mm-hmm. things where it kind of relied too much on, like, conventional horror tropes and things. And, and I think the bit, the biggest takeaway from me having, you know, watched the whole thing and considering first two films was just how bloodless it is. Yeah. It's not wet enough. No, it's not grotesque enough and yeah. wet. Like, there was a couple of places where it, it nearly gets there and it doesn't mm-hmm. quite... You're expecting it to go further. I felt it was almost there in the opening scene with that young uh, model-like actor, who um, yeah. the character who's brought into the room to complete the final yeah. configuration yeah. of the puzzle, and you see him kind of hung up in the background. And I was expecting to see a little bit more of that, but it it's almost too restrained in a way that at least the first two aren't. They, they manage to be grotesque without actually like taking it too far or just taking it to its absolute limit and then leaving it there. Whereas this, yeah. I feel like it, it doesn't take it far enough. It's strange. There was things that I actually quite liked when I was watching it. And then when thinking about it, I was like, oh, yeah, it's kind of like the, the whole notion of the puzzle box. And I did like the look of it and the way that they like redesigned it and used, the, used it more. But it became much more of a MacGuffin. Yes, yeah. And strangely reminded me of things like Jumanji. Uh, It's like, we've got to get to the next stage. Yeah. And it's like, and also I kind of felt it missed the point of the puzzle box from the original where it was like, the original was like there for people who who sought it and stuff. Mm -hmm. Whereas now it's like anybody can just look at it and and you can sacrifice anyone and there's nothing to be bargained or anything. Yeah. And it's just like, got to get to the next stage, the next shape. It's like ro- roll a six or seven. Yeah, it really, yeah, it did remind me of Jumanji a lot, like an adult Jumanji. Um, <laughs> but <laughs> <laughs> The thing for me that it, it resembled most and what they kind of distilled the puzzle box into, for one, as you've mentioned, it's there for people that, that seek it, for people that have reached the limits of of pleasure in this realm and want to take it further you know the sensation they want to take it beyond what we can feel here and that's what the puzzle box is there for as well that feels like that's something that's number one is completely lacking from this as well the idea of this pleasure and pain thing that they represent Mm. i would say as well that what they essentially turn the box into is um an, an elaborate game of tag where I, I understand that Kirsty at the end of Hellraiser manages to complete the box in such a way that it sends their Cenobites back to where they came from, uh, back to this, um, to you know, this other realm. In this one, though, like I think the the scene that really, really bothered me, and I guess spoilers for that film, but is that the point in which she uses it to stab the Chatterer, and the Chatterer is then ripped apart as if it's like part of the, you know, like used in part of the game. 
And it's like, oh, you've turned the puzzle box into an actual game kind of thing. Like you say, like yeah. Jumanji, yeah. where, oh, you can think your way out of this one. It's like it's not about bargaining or anything like that. It's like cheating the system, so to speak. You know, mm. like it, it kind of diminishes who the Cenobites are and what they represent by making it that way. I, I love the look of the puzzle box and I like the idea of different elements of the puzzle representing different things and bringing on different parts of this hellish other world. Mm. But they don't really explore that. It's just the same shit each time. It's like, yeah. whoever draws the blood gets taken away and endures suffering. Yeah, yeah. It's the same blunt instrument each time. Yeah. There's no variety to it. Yeah, and it's strange. Like There's things that I really appreciated about it. Like I love, I, I, you know, I did genuinely love the fact that they didn't go down the route of adding any, like, CGI to the Cenobites or anything yeah. like that. The yeah. fact that they're all practical mm -hmm. Cenobites. But I can kind of take it away again by saying that they suffer from a lot of the issues that a lot of creatures these days tend to suffer from is that they are way 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 over designed yes like you know we get a lot with the with the star wars creatures and things and, and it's like just way too much intricate over designing like they don't feel like real things yeah. anymore like considering the resources that they had like the cenobites in the original they're just so much more effective because they look like uh they, you know they look like real things in a way like they're grubby they're not yes. neat Whereas these are all like ridiculously pristine, and there's no there's no grime or slime to them or mm -hmm. anything. It's just really smooth, and they're almost like catwalk ready. Yeah, know? exactly. Yeah, it's, it know? is. It's like a catwalk in hell. You know, <laughs> it's the annual Cenobite fashion show. <laughs> <laughs> and in theory, I really like the idea as well that David Bruckner said that he wanted the skin itself to represent what the leather was in the in the previous film so you know the mm -hmm. idea that they are they are wrapped in their own skin as and and for example the hell priest pinhead her cloak is you know essentially flayed from her own body mm. i like that in theory but as with yourself i think they show too much of it and it's not wet enough it's not moist enough their wounds don't feel like wounds and as they do in the other films but I want to speak as well, just in a positive note for a moment for this film mm -hmm. on that particular subject, because one thing that I do need to mention is that although, yes, we are comparing this latest film to Hellraiser and Hellbound in terms of the, and, and that is the peak of the series, unfortunately, mm -hmm. that is the peak of the series. It's never quite gotten back to that. There is still a lot of bad road between that film and where we are now. This is still yeah. a step in the right direction. There's oh, still a, clearly yeah. a lot more love put into elaborating on this world, into exploring it, into um, designing the creatures and that type of thing. There is a gimmicky element to it, but it's not as gimmicky as it has been in the past. Mm -hmm. And I really love Jamie Clayton. Is it Jamie Clayton? Yep. I yep. really love the sound of her. The character needs work. I feel like it becomes a bit more perfunctory towards the end as it's just the Hell Priest just kind of stands there and watches for a lot of the final third of the film mm. but i do feel like she does well in that role and i want to see more of that so i, I want to say that this this feels like a legitimate film that many of the hellraiser films do not feel like i mean it's been direct to dvd hell we've got to the point as well where the cave trolls that are the weinsteins were they were making hellraiser films on nothing at all just so that they could retain the rights yeah so i mean and if you want to see some truly truly badly performed and 
executed Cenobites watch Hellraiser Judgment, I think it is, or, or whatever the found footage one is that has a yeah. has a pinhead in it that's got the puffiest face imaginable. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, this this does feel like it still feels like a legitimate film and it feels like a step in the right direction. But I was at no surprise to find out that David Goya had written the original story because like that thing with the puzzle box turning it essentially into Jumanji feels like a David Goyerism. You know, it feels yeah. like something yeah. he had had written. It's, it's for me, it also ends up repeating a larger theme that was really prominent in another horror uh, remake, reboot, requel, whatever you want to call them. But the Evil Dead also kind of like build itself as being like a reimagining of the first one, but also had this lead female character that was dealing with addiction and mm. the ramifications of addiction on her friends and her kind of support system that she has in place and that is essentially what this film is i feel like they probably wrote that outline in like 2009 (laughs) but (laughs) but only got around to actually expanding on it in the last few years and in a way like other films of the same nature have already beat you to that punch so a lot of this first hour of the film i mentioned to you before we started recording that i watched this film when it first came out and i tried watching it again last night i find the first hour of the film really a tough watch because it's a lot of people shouting and arguing about nothing mm. and it starts off with this promise of leviathan and exploring the more of the intricacies of this world and that doesn't actually come into play for like a whole hour of the film and instead it's a lot of people shouting about addiction and stuff like that and it doesn't really it's, it doesn't it doesn't feel like it's actually being explored yeah and then you get to the other ideas where like that the house ends up being like in a way like the puzzle box yeah i don't know what the the deal with all the circuit breakers is it's kind of weird yeah and the idea that the the puzzle box house keeps the cenobites out yeah it's never really explained how or why and yeah the fact that i really hated the end where leviathan basically becomes the blue light in the sky yeah yeah it really kind of got lazy and and in those modern hollywood tropes for me like the best thing in the film was gore and visnik i just thought that that whole idea of that character and what happened to him was the most hellraiser thing in the film yeah quite easily there was only one sort of other moment that felt as grewy as that but i did love the thing that was in him and you could see that like it had it his, was pulling his nerves his nerves yeah out. yeah yeah and i liked that he was like in the house still yeah like behind the walls and stuff i, I thought that worked quite well I, I know that that is like being hotly debated his inc- like character i like that character i actually think that the film becomes somewhat more alive when that element is introduced that's why i find the second half of this film a lot more watchable but i i kind of wish that he had more time on screen as well even yeah, yeah. like maybe pre and i wish his story had been hung around a better central character to kind of butt heads with their kind of like interactions with each other feel very inconsequential and not yeah. very intrinsically linked there's no like familial linking there there's not you know there's there's no reason really for them to be together other than the fact that they have this box at their center but i really like his performance and i really think that he adds something to the film when he comes into it as well i I love that that pulling of the nerves but not enough that it does like it ever becomes dull or anything like that it's just the right amount that he always feels it he's always in agony The, the only other scene that i really really enjoyed that i felt got closer to what 
the series is about is the the scene in which Pinhead is torturing yeah the the, <laughs> the, the nail, girl the nail and, from the head the nail from the head through the neck going and through like, the throat, I'll yeah. make you sing and and she, like like through the larynx that's the only other really gruey part of the film that's the scene in which suddenly I was like oh it's working whatever you're doing keep doing it you know it's like <laughs> it's <laughs> <Don't> working <stop. laughs> it's great um, yeah. and that that was a scene that really made me think like. It's it's a better scene than anything that's been in any sequel since the second one. That yeah, yeah, and yeah, and I do like that character. I just wish there was kind of more of it. And it does end with like a sequel bait for like come back next time and you'll see more of this character. Now that you've said it, it does feel very much like a David Escoya script because you know when you start thinking about the logic of everything, like even when you're watching it as well, it's like cool. Yeah, he's he's hiding behind the walls in this house, but I, I questioned this when when she even got to the house, like. Where, where's the security why, why wouldn't have this house been you know taken off sold yeah. through the estate there's, there's too many questions yeah as to how it even got this house built in this certain way <laughs> and oh yeah it's really start you know it starts to unravel when you really start when you just start thinking about it for two seconds and again yeah i, I kind of forget yeah, this is like the uh this is the hollywood version of this of this idea we have all these elaborate you know, MacGuffins and mm-hmm. fun houses and things like that. It is a bit of a, like a, a fun house kind of ride. I, you know what? I'd never thought of that Jumanji comparison, but the yeah, moment it, that you've mentioned it, that is yeah. exactly, it's like the Jumanji Because I even wrote box. down, it's like, oh yeah, um, recontextualizes the boxes. Uh, there's more stages. It can trick anyone. It's less less reasonable. And I said, as a positive, I said it gives them more reason to actually solve the puzzles but again, it just turns it into a game. Yeah. So, um, oh, the other, the only other positive I can gain from it is that I liked the ending where she chooses not to bring her brother back. Yes, I me too. That was yeah. a good, uh, a good call. It's strange. It, it's a really flawed film, but brings a series up to a level that it hasn't been for an awful long time. Yeah. You know, given how much it's been in the doldrums for, you know like more than two decades I, I want to stress that with this film the reason that i'm somewhat like disappointed with it is because i like david bruckner as a director and i like what he's done previously and i thought that it was a marriage made in heaven or hell depending on you know where you're coming at this from <laughs> and that is the reason why i'm quite as disappointed as i as i am when i contextualize it against the hellraiser series this is a leap and a jump in the right direction and in fact, there are elements of this that I would like to see expanded on in a sequel if they go down that road and elements that I hope that they just leave behind. I think because the uh, like the puzzle box itself, it can be reestablished, redefined, that type of thing. I don't think that you can um, continue on this path of it being this Jumanji box. I think if they go any further, it's going to have to represent something else. The only thing that I do hope that they bring into a sequel that is sorely missed, missing from this film is that I want it to be a kinky film as well because the other films are kinky. Like the first two yeah. films, the first one specifically is kinky. There is sex in this new Hellraiser film, but it's very much dressing. And it's heterosexual sex. Yeah, there's heterosexual <laughs> sex, there's gay characters. Even though that... there's a gay couple, but no, no, no. Yeah, exactly, yeah. <laughs> no gay yeah. sex in here. And we, um, I mean, this is Disney. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's <laughs> the just... End of the day. Um, yeah, it, it did feel a bit performative at times, like... And I liked that, I know, I liked that they were there because I kind of felt, oh, is this a bit of a tribute to Barker himself? Yeah. That they're there. But yeah, it did feel like 
I kind of felt right at the beginning the dynamic sounded a bit interesting, but then when they got rid of certain characters and then focused more on characters like Trevor, yeah, um, he was like easily the most stock of all the new, you know, of all yeah. the new characters. Yeah, it really lost its way and just became not that special. Again, yeah, with the, the whole thing with the puzzle box, I think the idea of the in the original with the vagrant character mm-hmm. is so simple but really effective. Modern films, they always, always have to come up with these real convoluted yeah. reasons as to why all these box, you know, why these things are here, and it's like. And it's like the simplest thing to have something more mystic and, and unexplainable in And it. the idea that this box itself, the idea that it's retrieved by this vagrant and then resold, you know, it's that it's that whole, like, it, it, there, are, there are many stories that are related to this box, many untold stories. Yeah. I do think that this new Hellraiser diminishes the power of that box and the stories that it tells, because with yeah. this box, the stories are all the same. Uh, with yeah. this particular setup, and that's that's an issue for me. Mm. I think that's why if they take it any further, they really have to recontextualize and rethink that box and what it represents. And if they do have these other elements to it in terms of other configurations, which I like in theory, it needs mm. to thematically uh, and um, and in terms of the world represent more. Yeah, yeah, and. I think if I'd watched it in isolation, I would have found it probably maybe better. But Same, yeah, I think so. Having just watched Hellbound the night before and what that film does, even on its you know rather limited resources, yeah, I can't quite express how much I loved Hellbound, actually, because it was just so... Um, it's one of my favourite films of all time, honestly. I've never quite seen anything quite like that before. Yeah. <laughs> it, is, it really... And, it, uh, yeah, and, it, and again, it's, it's just a great, a great sequel. Yeah, uh, and it's a shame it doesn't really get talked about in in the same breath. You know, it is like the Empire Strikes Back of of Hellraiser 100%, in a way, yeah. in in a horror sense. And its its rating is rather shocking. Yeah, um, even on IMDb, like it's like six point one or something like that, and it's like why? Yeah, <laughs> it's like because you know I think I genuinely think it is better than the original as well. It's one of those films that is. It builds on the original, and, and it, it, again, it irons out all the kinks of, you know, the quirks that were slightly, maybe slightly yeah. holding back the original, uh, but still has the same feel. I was describing it to someone not too long ago, and, and, I, and, I, and I described it as a low-key masterpiece. Like, it's it's one of yeah, those kind yeah. of, like, underappreciated small horror masterpieces kind of thing for me. It kind of blew my mind when I saw it for the first time, and, and I'm... I'm glad that that was like the first Hellraiser film that I saw as well. Yeah, yeah. Because it felt like such a fever dream, but it left such a mark. Yeah, and it kind of it really lived up to the uh, potential of the mm. idea and, and that whole world and how it all worked and the characters that exist within it. Even the fact we don't really go to hell in, in the new film. Sequel bait, baby. I found kind of weird. Yeah, it just felt too restrained. They've said that it almost feels like a parody of the notion of this elevated horror thing that people have kind of uh, latched onto as a type of horror film. And the whole idea that it's, uh, you know, restraint is the way forward in terms of horror. And yeah, that works for a lot of horror, but there are some horror films that really need to take that line further and really uh, when you're talking about something that's dealing with such like kind of like broad ideas as pleasure suffering you know wh- where that line is in terms of um, sex lust romance um you know bdsm culture as we said gay culture as we said all these kind of ideas they kind of require that bar to be like that that line to be pushed further to, in terms of the exploration <laughs> and this doesn't doesn't take it anyway I, I don't actually know like 
what this film is an exploration of. And face of it, addiction. It gets rid of the whole kind of pain and pleasure thing because, as you say, people that find this box, it's almost kind of like an accident. What is it? What are they seeking? Yeah, and the the only inkling you get of it is like in the um, the exposition diary. Yes, <laughs> you get in yeah. the middle of the film with his diary, uh, you know, his sort of little like uh, notebook. He's the only character in the film that represents the original. Yeah. In, in any way, shape, or form. And yeah, I mean, was this film made to be released theatrically or was it always made to be on on Hulu? I think it was much like Prey. It came pretty early doors that the film was going to be a streaming only. It probably came very early in production, that, uh, that notion from Disney. But they still made it with the idea that this is a film that would be seen on, on the cinema. So they made it no differently in regards to that. And that works to its benefit as it did for Prey. Prey is a much better execution of that idea as well, but, you know, of a re-establishing of a series, of a franchise. But yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I still feel that this was made for cinematic viewing. Yeah, because I kind of feel if it had made, been made for streaming, it might have been able to go a little bit further in some mm. areas. Yeah. And it's odd in a way, because, you, you know, you get things like, um, you know, Game of Thrones and stuff. Yes. Which people love. And then suddenly there's all this kind of restraint about sex and violence and stuff. And it's like, it's a horror film. We're going <laughs> backwards like, in a way. Yeah, <laughs> it's really odd. It's really odd. And again, yeah, I just digital cameras and stuff work fine. Uh, and, and I say I did appreciate that it wasn't overlit. But again, you don't get the grime that you need for this kind of film. Mm-hmm. And it, yeah, it, it works really well with films like, you know, The Invisible Man. Oh, yeah. Or yeah, something exactly, like yeah. that. Or, you know, some of the, um, you know, A24 films. Well, The Invisible Man really works well with it because it's it's all about the empty space and the negative yeah, space. And yeah. you need to see what that negative space is. It's not so much about what's in the shadows because that doesn't matter. It's about what's sat in that chair or standing in yeah, the corner yeah. of that room or that type of thing. Yeah, I mean, it's completely, completely unrelated. But I was watching a thing yesterday um, about someone comparing the two steve jobs biopics oh yeah compared jobs with the danny boyle michael fassbender version or the aaron sorkin version and how they use different film stocks for each of the the three parts and you see there's this transitional period between each one and they had different scores yeah like different styles of scores and i was like oh yeah that's that's great and the fact they use 16 millimeter film for the for the uh the first section yeah uh, and it's like, oh. You see, I'm sure on screen you actually see the film run out. And it's like, oh, I don't understand the need for these films to still be shot digitally and why they can't be a little bit more creative with, with how these things are actually made. It, it just requires just a bit of foresight. Just put in the work early in production. Make sure your actors know what they're doing. Put trust in that process and and go out there and do it. You know, it's uh, it yeah. just requires that, that extra hard work up front that obviously with the digital cameras you can you can do a lot more of on the day kind of thing and also i, th- I think i think for film studios the d- digital cameras hold so much more appeal because they have, because it's it's instant yeah they probably have more control over everything yeah yeah like what's happened with the re- recent batwoman film it's easier yeah, for them to uh, just completely. lock off people's uh you know restrict people's uh, ability to view the footage or take the footage it's not like back in the day where you had directors running off with their own film cans and hiding them away from the studio yeah yeah so there you go we've made uh digital cinema cameras sinister yeah there we are. <laughs> uh, 
Yeah. <laughs> okay, so just a few stats and facts as well in regards to this. Uh, there aren't very many. As Hellraiser, the 2022 version was released on a, on streaming, there are no real box office figures to go through. And I can tell you that the first Hellraiser was made for a million dollars and made back 14 million overall. In regards to the critical reception, it's actually very similar. Uh, the original Hellraiser has a 70% tomato reading and a 73% audience score. And the new Hellraiser has a 68% tomato meter and a 62% audience score. I think it's gone down, actually. I read it as 67% the other day. Oh, well, there we go. And... And Hellraiser, the 1987 version, is 6.9 out of 10. And Hellraiser 2022 is 6.1 out of 10. That's the IMDb score. That's really sad that it's got the same IMDb score as, as Hellbound. Yeah, it, I was, that, that's what I was <laughs> going to mention. It's, they're very similar in terms of the the reaction. I think, obviously, the new Hellraiser won't be as, as fondly remembered as, as the old one. And I don't think that that score at 6.1 will stay there for too long. But no, I, I do still think it is a film that has moved the series in the right direction, but I, I, it needs somebody else to really come in. And I'm talking on a writing level as well to just really take it back to where it came from. And I don't think that means as well lavish budget or, or you know, like like you say, that kind of Hollywood treatment. I think it just requires them going back to down, dirty, gritty, like the bones of what worked in the originals. Yeah, definitely. And I don't, I don't see it why it has to be so americanized every time as well like yeah ever since the bring third it home one, bring hellraiser home baby i don't think it matters to commercialization now seeing as like you know every single fantasy film that comes out everyone speaks with british or european accents it does yeah th that that whole notion is a nonsense now and i course, still don't yeah. understand why why that has to be done in that way yeah and i generally think even though literally the film's just come out I think it will be very, very swiftly forgotten. Yeah, because it's like it's like it's kind of yeah, it's that mediocre ground. Yeah, it is it, that it's... it fulfills that it it's not so bad. It's good. It's you know, it's not got some crazy you know, it's not got some crazy shit in it or anything like that. It's, yeah, it's like the wrong side of fine. Yeah, <laughs> that's what yeah. it is. Yeah. And that's all we have to say really on our first first and last episode where we've taken on Hellraiser. And I think we can both agree that the original has one, but as we've mentioned as well, those first two, they're the ones that you want to stick with. It's the second one is very much an intrinsic part of that as well. Join us next time as we'll be taking on the newly released Star Trek the Motion Picture Director's Cut. It has just been released on 4K and you can find it on most streaming services, so you should be able to catch up before our next episode airs. And uh, just to let you know, in regards to the release of the next few episodes, we'll be releasing on a fortnightly pattern. And yes, we will be back soon in mid-November with this latest episode. But until then, I have been Gareth. And I've been Hellbound Andy. <laughs> okay, thank you for listening. What will be your pleasure. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for listening. See you next time.